Alright, and welcome to the Rory's Nitro podcast, the show that rips up the buy rates and TV ratings and declares our own winner in some of pro wrestling's biggest head-to-head battles. I'm your host, Lee Carlos Cunningham, and this is episode 10, WrestleMania 10, up against the 1994 Spring Stampede. For those of you that follow on Twitter, this is ep- uh, attempt to add episode 10. The last one didn't go according to plan. A lot of background noise and it just wasn't coming out right, so we're having another crack at this one. Um, and a lay of the land for where we stood at the time. Uh, WrestleMania 10 is the culmination of the sort of year-long failed push of Lex Luger. He'd been in the title match at 1993 SummerSlam against Yokozuna, where he'd won by countout after knocking out Yoko with the big forearm, and then celebrated as though he had won the world title. He continued to be pushed as a top babyface throughout 1993, coming into the 1994 Royal Rumble. Many expected him to win the Rumble match, however, they hedged their bets and went with co-winners of Lex Luger and Bret the Hitman Hart. From there, they began to test out the popularity of the two to decide who they were going to go with in the long run, with many feeling and urban legend having it that Lex was scheduled to win the title right up until the week of the event. This would of course be backed up by the fact that there is footage out there of Vince McMahon introducing Lex Luger as the World Heavyweight Champion, a little something they did on a TV taping after he ran off Yoko and the belt was laying around. Vince decided to say, hey, let's see how this looks, and announced him as though he'd won the title to the crowd. Unfortunately, leading up to WrestleMania, it was becoming pretty obvious to everyone that Bret Hart was by far the more popular, so they had a real decision to make coming into WrestleMania 10, hence why they had the co-winner of the Royal Rumble and bought themselves some time by putting them both in title matches at the big show. Shawn Michaels was coming back from another suspension for ba- behaving badly. In his absence, Razor Ramon had won the vacated Intercontinental Champion, and this was a somewhat of a title unification bout on WrestleMania. And Jerry the King Lawler was finishing out his suspension, which saw him miss Survivor Series with his team of knights going to Shawn Michaels to take on the Hart family, with this show being his first one back. Over in WCW, they were in the midst of wooing Hulk Hogan. Um, Most of you have probably heard the story by now. Eric Bischoff sent Ric Flair out to put the feelers to the Hulkster while he was taping Thunder in Paradise, which was also on the same network as WCW. And... This was right in the middle of them about to land the Hulkster, so there was a lot of talk about him on the show and in the events leading up to it. The shows themselves did vastly different buys, with WrestleMania obviously being the marquee attraction for the WWF. That brought in 420,000 buys, whereas Spring Stampede, being sort of just a a B-level pay-per-view for WCW, only brought in 153,000 buys. So that should give us a good lay of where everything was in in the land of wrestling at this point. Um, Without any further ado, Jack Tunney has flipped his coin, um, and we're going to WrestleMania first and foremost. We had one dark match for WrestleMania 10, and that was the Heavenly Bodies defeating the Bushwhackers. Can't say I'm sad to have missed that one before we get to the card proper. When we do open up, WrestleMania 10 is coming to us from Madison Square Garden, March 20th, 1994, in front of a large crowd of 18,065. We open up with a nice recap, highlighting and celebrating the first WrestleMania also from the Garden. We get a good rundown with some still shots of Lex Luger, Bret Hart and Yokozuna giving us the lay of the title picture, with some nice intro music before Vince McMahon gives us one of his classic WrestleMania welcomes. He introduces Little Richard as only he can to sing America the Beautiful, overlapping some of the typical Americana video packages that they'd love to do in wrestling. Vince then introduces us to Jerry the King Lawler after the song, uh, who's been away for a while, and this, as I mentioned previously, is his first match, uh, first night back, I apologise. He, like I just did then, fluffs his first line about Little Richard's underwear being a little bit too tight. I guess the nerves of being away for a while got to him early on. Uh, It doesn't last long before he gets up and running, though. 
we get a very quick video package recapping the Owen and Brett the Hitman Hart uh, little storyline that have been going on before opening up with our first contest of Brett versus Owen in what should be a doozy. Owen's out first and he's no longer ripping off a Hitman theme, he's got a cool little theme song of his own. tells us to look out for a classic wrestling match and for once his predictions are right on the money and then Brett comes out to a really good pop. Uh, the crowd are firmly behind him here. I notice as he's coming out we've got some really nice looking black and gold ropes and of course as always the entrance at Madison Square Garden is facing the hard camera which gives it a nice unique feel. Um, a lot of the arenas they use nowadays all look the same. Always enjoy when they go to the garden and it looks just that little bit different. And once again we're in an arena that I've actually been to. I saw the New York Knicks play the Atlanta Hawks and I also did the Madison Square Garden tour when I was in America in 2014 and yes I did get a picture underneath the sign that Jeff Hardy jumped off onto Bubba Ray Dudley with the Swanton bomb. The King tells us that Stu Hart would have been here but he couldn't find himself an orthopedic tuxedo in a good line to get us going and before we go into a lockup and a clean break which Owen celebrates like he's won the match good stuff. We go into a nice little wrestling sequence, a fireman uh, reversed into a head scissor, which Owen then kips up from and once again celebrates like he's won the match. He's on fire here with his heels just shtick. A guy at ringside in the front row, I imagine, yells out really loudly, come on Owen, which catches Brett's attention. He has to turn and look at the guy. But they go back into some chain wrestling, which Brett gets the upper hand of this time, so Owen rears back and cocks him with a huge slap. From there, they go back into the wrestling and they exchange some hammerlocks, but don't worry, it's not going to rate on our scale here. They really just trade backwards and forwards who's got the advantage with Owen doing his little undermining uh, sort of cheating tactics when he's getting the chance. Hair pulls and things like that. We then get our first near fall of the night as Brett goes for a cradle for a two and we get a huge let's go Brett chant as the commentators debate who Helen Hart would be supporting if she was here. Brett fires off with a monkey flip and then a clothesline over the top rope before they come back into the ring and Brett returns a favour with a huge slap of his own and then a schoolboy roll up for a two, a crucifix for a two before Owen comes back with a really good spinning heel kick. Continues on the offence with a backbreaker, then a camel clutch which Brett escapes before hitting a really cool overhead belly to belly suplex. He gets a near fall on that one as well before hitting a crossbody which is reversed for a two cut before Owen fires back with a really high uh, German suplex on the hitman for another two. Brett comes back with a small package to get another two count of his own, where Owen really starts to fire up the aggression here. Lots of hair pulls, kicks, punches, and then he hits a tombstone pile driver. Doesn't go for the pin though, he heads up top, goes for either a headbutt or a splash, which he misses, and then Brett comes off with an inverted atomic drop and a clothesline for a two. Before going into his sort of usual sequence, a Russian leg sweep gets him a two count, a backbreaker gets him a two count, and the second rope elbow also gets him a two count. The crowd begin to bite on all the near falls here. This is a long time before they have to see five finishes before they'll believe the finish is coming, and they're really heating up for this one. Owen comes out with an enziguri as well, a move that he'd make famous later on against Shawn Michaels, before getting major heat from the crowd for attempting a sharpshooter. Not too long after this, we end up with Owen on the outside. Brett comes over the top rope, top rope even with a plancher, but appears to hurt his knee on the landing. Owen smells blood and goes after the knee immediately with a cool dragon whip, a figure four leg lock which is reversed and then reversed again before they end up in the ropes and Brett fires back with an enziguri of his own. Owen then takes the Brett corner spot running chest first into the buckles before Brett hits a bulldog for a two count and a pile driver for a two count. This has been a really awesome back and forth match so far, both guys getting lots of offense and the crowd really into it. Brett again puts him up for a superplex and gets a two count on a really close one. It's getting really good here now. Brett puts on a sleeper, but Owen gets to the ropes and with the referee distracted, nails Brett with a low blow. He then puts on the sharpshooter, which Brett reverses. Owen gets to the ropes, however. This takes us to our finishing sequence where Brett gets up on Owen's shoulders and looks for the victory roll, but as he hits the mat, Owen drops down, knees onto his shoulders, and holds him down for the 1-2-3. 
The crowd can't believe it, Owen can't believe it, and Brett can't believe it. Owen rubs it in massively and begins one of the best storylines I can remember as a child. In the aisleway, Todd Pettengale wants to interview Owen, who's got spit in his mouth, but he's bragging, and we then go to a cool video package of a WrestleMania 2 moment, which was the battle royal we all remember and love. But before we move on to the next match, I think it is worthwhile saying that in watching this at WrestleMania 10, for my money, this was definitely at this point, the best WrestleMania match we'd ever seen. Really awesome opening contest, and if I was putting together a perfect card, this would be the kind of match I would always open with. Uh, one of my favourite opening pay-per-view matches of all time. Really good stuff. The next match on the card I've not got quite as high praise for. We go to Bam Bam Bigelow and his main squeeze, Luna Vachon, up against Doink and Dink. Um, the best part of this match was Bam Bam's entrance, for my money. Bam! seem to be on my wavelength as well as when Doink comes out he gets very little response they're not into him at all and thankfully Bam Bam gets on the attack nice and early and asserts some dominance a really good drop kick followed by a miss sent on when which allows Doink to tag out bringing in of course Luna and Dink in sort of the mixed tag rules they're going with here Luna's in an interesting outfit um, the fashion portion of the show tells us that she's wearing leather with fishnet and studded chaps so an interesting combination she's got going there um, only probably only work in certain areas of town at night time. Dink gives her a good slap on the ass before Luna starts to choke him and then my network drops out and for the first time in the history of the podcast I'm thankful that I can stop watching. When it comes back on Vince obviously realising the error of his ways in booking this shit tells us that Dink is a pro wrestler he really knows what he's doing. Sure Vince no problem. The unfortunate part of course is whoever booked this didn't. But then, not too long after this, Luna kicks the fuck out of Doink in the chest and I pop huge and nearly jump off my lounge as she smashes him. Doesn't last long though, um, she misses a splash, tags in Bam Bam and Bam Bam and Doink come in, some stuff happens, it's shit, it's not worth recapping. Uh, Doink hits a DDT, misses a whoopee cushion, and then Doink knock, uh, Bam Bam sorry, knocks Dink off the apron and a sloppy back suplex is reversed by Bam Bam for a two before he comes off the top rope for it with his flying headbutt for the three count, and the only saving grace of this match is they didn't put Doink over Bam Bam. This was atrocious and a complete waste of his talent. I thought Bam Bam really had potential to be one of the top heels at the time, and this was a storyline that just dragged him way down. We continue on with our WrestleMania moments through the night as well, as it's WrestleMania 3 this time, and it's a stare-down between Hulk Hogan and Andre. They don't show the slam or the Hulkster going over, probably mindful that he's about to go to WCW. They just show the, the cool moment with the flashbulbs going off in the background, which just serves to remind me how shit the match we just saw was. Uh, so it brings us to our Hammerlock scale worst match of the podcast, and this week it is Bam Bam and Luna up against Doink and Dink, and this will rate a 4 out of 10 on the Richter scale. Um... Really would have been higher if it was longer. Thankfully, they kept it short and they had the right finish. Other than that, complete shits. Don't bother watching it. From there, we go to the Macho Man up against Crush in the Falls Count Anywhere grudge match, um, where the rule of this one was Falls Count Anywhere in the building, but after being pinned, you would have 60 seconds to get back to the ring, and if you did, the match would continue. Uh, the match gets underway really quickly as Savage runs out to the aisle to attack Crush, running past and knocking over Mr. Fuji. Unfortunately, he doesn't, it doesn't pay off for him as he gets hit with a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker on the floor, and then Crush press slams him onto the rail for a three count. You heard it right. Crush has pinned him in the first minute of the match. Um, while he's on the floor, Fuji hits him with the flag a little bit, but he does have 60 seconds to get to the ring, and he does that in 58 seconds, so this one obviously starts at a bit of a snail's pace. They get back into the ring to start the match over again, and Macho Man's in uh, in the Tree of Woe pretty early, Crush catches him, then he goes to get salt, but sneaks around hiding it like an idiot, this is a Falls Count Anywhere match, you're allowed to use salt if you want, and in sneaking with his back to everyone, Macho sees it coming and knocks the salt into his eyes. Nails him with an axe handle, a body slam, and comes off the top 
with the classic Macho Man elbow before realising the stupid part of the match. After he's hit him with the elbow, he realises if he pins him in the ring, he will obviously be in the ring within 60 seconds. They didn't think this one through. So he has to roll him to the floor, then pin him for a really awkward three count. Um, Fuji attempts to revive Crush. He's not having much luck, so he just pours some water in his face and Crush again gets in the ring two seconds before the 60 are up. Not too much happens after this. They brawl through to the backstage area and Savage gets the upper hand. He puts Crush down, pins him, and then hog ties his feet with some cabling on a platform backstage before heading back to the ring and nailing Fuji on his way. Crush obviously is tied up. He can't get out, so Macho Man picks up the victory. Considering who was involved, uh, Crush a big guy who could move a little bit, he was alright, and Macho Man being Macho, it, it was a pretty disappointing outcome, this one, it was one I remember at the time, just not liking at all. The sour taste doesn't stay for too long though, as we head up to a Bill Clinton impersonator sat in the crowd, being interviewed by Todd Pettengale with IRS sat in the seat behind him. Um, I love me some good IRS puns, me. And he does then go on to congratulate <laughs> the fake Bill Clinton on raising taxes. Uh, really cheesy stuff, but I love it. We then go to a FanFest recap, which is a precursor to today's Access, and the best part of that is they show the Hasbro booth with all the Hasbro figures on sale. One day I will have that booth, and I will show it off on Twitter for you all, so look forward to that in the months and years to come. Another WrestleMania moment, they're going in chronological order, obviously, and it's Macho Man winning the title at WrestleMania 4. He had to go through the entire tournament to do so, so they show clips of all of that. And then we go to our next match, which is for the women's title, Alandra Blaze up against Lalani Kai. In a fun little trivia note for you here, Lalani Kai was the only wrestler to appear at both WrestleMania 1 and WrestleMania 10 in a match. And Alandra Blaze comes out to some cool pyro before the action gets underway. Lalani Kai hits the Ho Train attack uh, before Alandra Blaze fires back with a sunset flip for a two count. Then another sunset flip for a two count before Lalani Kai lifts her in that cool double-handed choke spot where she's got her off the ground. Um, Jerry Lawler on commentary is selling that Lalani Kai is the prettier of the two. Sorry King, she is ghastly. She does, however, hit a good slam for a two-count before Alandra Blaze fires back with a Hurricane Rana for a two-count of her own. Lilani Kai does get back on the offense, though, and throws her around the ring via hair and hits a cool double underhook suplex for a two-count. Alandra Blaze fires back pretty quick, though. It's, it's a decent pace match, this. She hits a good spinning heel kick and a suplex for a two-count of her own, and Jerry Lawler tells us that if Alandra Blaze, uh, she could star in westerns if she had two more legs. Uh, before she does fire away, hit a German suplex, which was a finisher for the 1-2-3, in a match that was quick enough and didn't offend. It, it was a decent advertisement for women's wrestling. The only real sour point to this was Jerry Lawler's commentary. He only cared about who the good-looking wrestler was and being the heel he was going to call Lilani Kai the better-looking. And for that, Jerry, you're going to earn my dick move of the week for basically foreshadowing what was to come for women's wrestling for about the next 20 years before they got their act together. Thank you very much. Speaking of women wrestlers, we now go to the crowd where we see that the fabulous Moolah and Mae Young are watching the events with Nikolai Volkov. And then we go to our WrestleMania 5 moment, which was Roddy Piper and Morton Downey um, with the the um, fire extinguisher in the face, if you remember it there, before Oscar wraps out Men on a Mission for the tag title match. Um, out come Men on a Mission, two gigantic men in pyjamas, and it just makes me scratch my head and ask the question I've been asking for years, why does professional wrestling always have to turn any hip-hop character into complete shit? For those of you that doubt my claim here, think of John Cena now and all the heat he receives. When, when he debuted for the first year or two, he was pretty much the hottest actor in the company. Think PN News, that atrocity, um, just horrible, horrible gimmick. Think Men on a Mission and the raps they're coming out to. Think the hip-hop hippo, Albert. Think Bull Buchanan, B-squared, Bling Bling Buchanan. Um, I can't think of a good example. Um, even Crime Time they made lame. I remember when Crime Time first debuted, I thought they were cool, and soon enough they were spray-painting CTC and JBL is poopy with John Cena on Bradshaw's limo. Just, they have no idea how to book rap at all. We get a good little backstage bit after this anyway, um, what sort of in between the entrances, I should say, where it's Shawn Michaels and Ronda Shear backstage flirting before Burt Reynolds comes in and obviously the heartbreak kid gets dumped for Burt. We come back out and the Quebecers are ready to come out to their awesome theme song.
some honest to god good stuff one of my favorite ever themes uh we get into a quick brawl pretty early on with mo and pierre in there before we get the tag into mabel who hits a big leg drop and jerry lawler tells us that when mabel was a baby he had to be baptized at SeaWorld, so he's really on fire here he also tells us that for men on a mission we forget the bathroom scales and we weigh them on a richter scale another good line there the quebecers get the upper hand early and they take turns uh getting in on mo on the action we get an awesome backdrop um on one of the Quebecers to the other over the top onto Mo before a double clothesline onto the ropes and a flipping ass. That, of course, is coming from Mo, not from the Quebecers, who then makes a hot tag um, and Mabel gets in there with a backdrop and a boss man slam. But then the Quebecers come back with a really cool spot, nailing Mabel with a double suplex. Um, they sold they couldn't do it at first and it hurt their back, but they did eventually get him up in a really cool spot. Then get one coming off the top rope with the assistance of the other into a senton, which gets them a two. Before Mabel gets back up and gets on the offense, which the crowd seem to be into a little bit, he hits that really cool rolling heel kick of his. And then we get Mo in as well, um, coming on the back of Mabel for a big double splash uh, before the Quebecers end up on the outside, take a powder, and decide they've had enough and walk out and take the count out. Bit of a lame ending to what was building into an okay match there. Um, and men on a mission then grab the tag titles and rap and celebrate in the ring like the idiots they are. The next WrestleMania moment is WrestleMania 6, and it's Hulk Hogan and the Warrior, and Gorilla Monsoon on the voiceover tells us that that proved nobody was unbeatable. Way to rub it into the Hulkster on his way to WCW. From there, Howard Finkel introduces us to the celebrities, uh, Ronda Shear, um, Burt Reynolds, etc., and Donnie Wahlberg, who's going to do the guest ring announcing for the first title match, and his first order of business is to bring out the special guest referee. Each title match would have one, and it's a returning Mr. Perfect, who's not only in the stripes of a referee, but he's got the pants on as well, dressed head to toe like a Foot Locker store. He does, however, get a really good pop from the crowd, so, you know, a good choice there, popular person to be bringing back. And the first title match is Yokozuna defending the title up against Lex Luger. Uh, Donnie Wahlberg, by the way, did a good job on the ring introductions. I thought he was really into it and seemed to know his stuff, so props to him. Vince sells at the crowd are really up for Lex Luger here. He does get a good response, but it's only good. It's certainly not as, as big as Bret Hart, and I don't think it was as big as the Macho Man's either. It's probably around about on par with Mr. Perfect's, if I'm being honest. Yoko comes out next, and he's getting big, but he's not as big as he could be. Still got a bit of beef to come on yet. Um, and we get a good start here. Lex with some clotheslines on Yoko before Yoko comes back and nails him, misses an elbow drop, and um, Lex... Hits an axe handle on the outside and then throws him into the ring steps. Comes off the top rope for a big cross body block, which gets a long two count. It was close. Um, nails him with a big elbow. Goes for the slam, but unfortunately he's too heavy. It's reversed and Yoko falling on gets a two count. And then he locks in the dreaded nerve hold. And this seems to slow the match right down to a snail's pace. He's literally just holding him there. He's doing nothing. He's not moving. They're not selling. It's just one big long rest. Luger does fire out eventually, though, um, gets himself out of it, comes off the ropes, but Yoko catches him with the shoulder blocks, a uh, couple of chops, and then holy Bobby Eaton, it is back to the nerve hold. I'm looking around ringside for something to comment on because there's, there's nothing happening here, and the first thing that takes my eye is Jim Cornette's black and gold tuxedo. It's sort of got an Elvis-esque vibe to it, almost like a honky-tonk man outfit. He looks really classy. Um, not that the honky-tonk man looked classy, but you get my drift. Go and have a look. And I'm not the only one looking around. The crowd are dying a death here. They're really not happy with this long nerve hold as Lex just sits there and Yoko has a big rest. He does fight out once again. And just when you think the match is about to speed up, fuck right off. Yokozuna puts on a third nerve hold of the match. And I'm not alone. Madison Square Garden hit them with a boring chant. The, probably the earliest one I have ever heard. I mean, you think back a few years um, to an event you may have heard of, the Bunkhouse Stampede. I don't even recall hearing boring, boring chants in that one. And Bobby Eaton put me to sleep. 
He gets out the nerve hole for a third time, but gets hit with a belly-to-belly -belly suplex. He does manage to get back on the offense, though, with four clotheslines. Hits him with the big slam, the, the move everyone was waiting for, and then nails him with his steel-enforced forearm. I had one of those when I was a teenager, fell off my push bike. Um, can't say it ever knocked anyone out, though, unfortunately. This does take us to the finishing sequence, though, as the managers get on the ring, Fuji and Cornette. Luger nails them both and brings them both into the ring, then goes to pin Yokozuna after this. Perfect doesn't count the fall. He goes over and checks on one manager, then the other. Lex berates him for not counting. He then goes and checks on a manager again, and then another one again, before Lex gets up and shoves him. Goes back down for the pin. Perfect has a look around and calls for the bell. We have a lame disqualification ending to the first uh, title match of the night, the first world title match, following on to the tag, from the tag title match, which also had a lame count-out ending, and the crowd are rightfully pissed off with a big bullshit chant, which is so loud Vince really has to acknowledge it on commentary. Uh, Perfect heads to the back and Luger follows him, and there's a bit of a pull-apart going on back there, having to be held apart from the argument. We then get our WrestleMania 7 recap, which is a look at the blindfold match. That was a strange one. Um, if I was looking at something from WrestleMania 7, it would probably have been the Rockers up against the Barbarian and Haku. Um, but this was what they chose. Before moving on to our next match, um, Harvey Wimpleman, Whippleman is coming out to berate the Fink, who's trying to introduce him. And he rips at the Fink's tuxedo, and this is about enough for Howard Finkel. He gives him a shove, which brings Adam Bomb out to defend his manager's honour. But that in turn brings out Earthquake to stick up for the babyface announcer. He comes out, nails Adam Bomb with a belly-to-belly -belly suplex, a power slam, and his Earthquake splash for the 1-2-3 in a complete squash. We go backstage where Todd Petting... Pettingale, even, is interviewing um, Jim Cornette, Mr. Fuji, and Yokozuna. Cornette's doing all the talking, talking a mile a minute about the only thing I could keep up with him right now was he called Todd Petting Zoo, which got a laugh out of me. Um, he does sell that Bret Hart has hurt his knee in the first match, and they've seen it, and that will be where they go for their attack. Good promo gets us hyped for the main event. WrestleMania 8's little recap is just The Undertaker walking out. There's nothing to it. And then we go to a well-known match, uh, the ladder match for the Intercontinental title. Um, as I mentioned in the start of the show, Shawn Michaels had been suspended while carrying the Intercontinental title, so they held a battle royal on Raw, where the last two participants would then face off the next week for the vacant title. Those two participants were Razor Ramon and Rick the Model Martel, and Razor got the Duke, making him the Intercontinental Champion. Shawn then returned and had his rightful claim to have never lost the belt, and this was the way they were going to settle it. During the ring introductions, we get told that this is a special ladder match and there are no rules. Remember that for just a moment, please. In the entrances, we get a cool shot of the sky cam above the belt, which shows us the sort of up above view. Shawn Michaels comes out first with Diesel, and he doesn't walk under the ladder, not wanting to risk any bad luck, before Razor comes out to a pretty good pop, actually, and he, of course, does walk under the ladder, showing that he's not bothered. Uh, Sean starts off with some hammerlocks to begin the match, uh, believe it or not, uh, before getting hit by a cool chokeslam by Razor. The match takes a spill to the outside pretty early on after Sean hits a neck breaker, and then on the outside, Diesel nails Razor with a big clothesline, and Earl Hebner's not happy, he kicks him out. So, first rule of the match, no interference from managers. Once Diesel's gone, though, the match does really pick up, and um, Razor's nailing Sean with some of his awesome punches. For my money, he's one of, if not the best punches that I've seen in wrestling. Sean does his Ric Flair impersonation, taking that corner flip over the buckles on the, on the Irish whip, and he's just bumping like a boss here. Razor goes for a Razor's edge, but his back's near the rope, so you know what's coming there. He gets backdropped over the top onto the previously exposed concrete where they'd lifted the pad from. Sean goes out first to get the ladder. Um, Razor takes it off him, though, but Sean fires back with a baseball slide into the ladder. Sean then unloads on a variety of different ladder shots onto Razor. If you think about the old SmackDown games, any move you could do with a ladder, Sean nails it here. He then throws a ladder at Razor before setting it up and attempting to climb, but Razor jumps up, yanks Sean's pants down, exposing his bare ass, and pulls him off the ladder. Um, back on the ladder, and Sean manages to knock Razor down himself, then comes off the ladder with an elbow drop, a spot I'm sure you've seen a million times, uh, before hitting a slam, going back up to the ladder, and coming off with that classic splash, which has been immortalised in videos and still shots ever since. He goes up again to climb, but again, Razor knocks him over. Back in the ring, they have a double head clash, and then Razor whips Sean into the ladder, hits him with a couple of ladder shots, and then slingshots him into the ladder as well. Razor begins to climb the ladder looking for the belt himself. Sean knocks him off, but in doing so, the ladder falls on Sean. 
Then they both end up climbing it together, looking for the belt. Razor throws Sean up, um, but Sean drop kicks the ladder. As they come back down, he hits Sweet Chip Music, not called that at this stage, and a huge pile driver um, before climbing to the top rope, holding onto the ladder and coming down with the ladder in a splash on top of Razor. Sean then goes up to retrieve the belt, but Razor does get up, knocks the ladder over. Sean comes off, crotches himself on the top rope, a little bit awkwardly ties his leg into the rope. Um, he's flailing about as Razor's climbing now, and when he does manage to get out, he falls, and his arm gets tied in the rope, allowing Razor to take the two title belts hung above and become the undisputed Intercontinental Champion in what was undoubtedly a five-star classic. A uh, really awesome match. I said earlier that Brett Owen at this point in time was the best WrestleMania match in history. It's just unfortunate it fell on the same night as this one. Um, even Dave Meltzer, I believe, gave this five stars and Sean and Owen, sorry, Brett and Owen, four and three quarters. So it shows how close it was. But this match probably did etch it and certainly for historical significance is right up there. We go backstage and the heel portion of a 10-man tag match set are all arguing about who the team captain's going to be. So that match gets scrapped. And then Ted DiBiase is in the president's box with the fake Bill Clinton. Uh, WrestleMania 9 recap comes up next, and it just shows the toga party. Um, pretty funny that they didn't have a match that they thought was worthy of showing from this event. I can't say I blame them. Before we head into a video package about Yokozuna and Bret the Hitman Hart, and this does show some WrestleMania 9 footage talking about how Yoko beat him for the title. This match also has a special guest referee, as I mentioned earlier, and it's Rowdy Roddy Piper who comes out to a really good pop from Madison Square Garden. When the combatants are in the ring, Yoko gets on the offense early, attacking pretty early on, and Piper goes to his, what, have, what do you say, Brett? What do you say? Which is a really horrible foreshadowing for WrestleMania still to come. The two exchange some moves and some misses of moves. Um, Brett misses a drop kick, Yoko misses a splash, and Piper's making himself the center of attention early on, which is a little bit distracting. Brett then does get on offense and begin pounding away, um, but when he goes for a count, Cornette pulls Roddy Piper out the ring, who just nails Jim Cornette. But this does allow Yokozuna to get back on the offense. He hits a really sloppy-looking head, falling headbutt to Brett while he's lay on the mat. It misses by at least half a foot before he hits his huge leg drop, which definitely doesn't miss. It looks awesome. He doesn't stay on offense too long, though. He's pretty gassed at this point, so it allows Brett a chance to get back on, on, on offense. Hits a cool-looking bulldog for a two-count, a second rope elbow for a two-count before coming off the ropes again. But Yoko catches him with a big belly-to-belly -belly suplex. Goes up for the bonsai drop, but he can't do it. He falls off. He's tired, apparently. Uh, misses the bonsai, lands on the floor. The commentators speculate about whether or not he hit his head. Brett jumps on him for the pin and the 1-2-3. Uh, after the match, Yoko chases Roddy Piper out the ring, and the celebration begins. The first one out to congratulate Brett is actually Lex Luger, um, which is interesting, followed by Razor Ramon and all the other baby faces, Tatanka, Bob Holly, etc., come out and lift Brett on their shoulders and, and celebrate with him uh, before Owen Hart comes in the aisle. Macho invites him to come in the ring, which he declines, and he just steely stares at Brett and makes his intentions to go for the title pretty clear. The crowd give a really good appreciative response to Brett, and it looks like his first challenge is already up and running, and WWF have given Brett the Hitman Hart the ball to run with. The last match was a little bit disappointing, and I thought they could have found a, a more impactful way for him to win the title, but overall, he's getting what he deserves. Um, definitely long overdue that Brett gets his chance to shine after the travesty of Hulk Hogan not putting him over the year before. So that does it for WrestleMania 10. Without any further ado, we're going to skip forward a month to WCW and see what the Spring Stampede 1994 has to offer.
WCW, of course, had some dark matches of their own with Danny Bonaducci defeating Christopher Knight and Patsanaka and Hieto defeating Kevin and Dave Sullivan. Um, again, not sad to have missed that myself. And Spring Stampede comes to us from the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago, if you listen to wrestling announcers, with a crowd of 12,200. We open up with a really crappy Wild West-style intro video, um, pretty horrible guitar music over the background, recapping the big events, and then Gene introduces Aaron Neville to sing the national anthem, does a pretty decent job of it, and our commentary team, Tony Schiavone and Bobby the Brain Heenan, appear on screen to throw us to our first match, Diamond Dallas Page up against Johnny B. Bad. The keener listeners amongst you may realise that this is the first ever two-time match on the podcast, because we have seen DDP take on Johnny B. Bad uh, before. DDP looks like a bit of a fool here as well. He hadn't really refined his look. He was looking a little bit silly. Um, when the match gets underway, DDP hits a quick roll-up for a two-count before clotheslining Johnny B. Bad over the top rope. He then goes to work on Johnny's arm before hitting a cool-looking fireman into a backdrop. Uh, pretty cool move. They trade some mat wrestling and a series of good reversals, which ends in DDP hitting a nice back suplex. Then a gut buster and then a vertical suplex for a two-count. He locks on a chin lock, but Johnny B. Bad manages to get out with a back suplex of his own and a big punch to the gut before hitting him with an inverted atomic drop and a clothesline, a backdrop, a cool flying head scissor, and a big left hand which sends DDP outside the ring where he comes over the top rope with an awesome running plancher. It's all Johnny B. Bad now, he's really getting on the offense, and in a weird move that defies my wrestling logic, goes up to the top rope, flips over DDP, and lands a sunset flip for a three count, but any other time you get thrown off the top rope, you're going to be selling. If you jump yourself, you don't get hurt. Interesting. Anyway, I won't let the finish distract from what was a pretty decent opening match with two guys that had pretty good chemistry, by my thinking. Um, from there, we go backstage to Gene Oakland and Jesse Ventura, who's now rocking the Paul Heyman bald head with ponytail look, and they're plugging Gordon Soley on the hotline, but Jesse tells us that... Um, you got to get in quick so you can hear him before he's gone, inferring that um, Gordon Soley's so old that he might not live much longer. Interesting. From there, we head back to ringside, where the commentators tell us that Lord Stephen Regal, accompanied by Sir William, will be defending his television championship up against Brian Pillman. Uh, Michael Buffer does the intros, or is it Bruce Buffer? I never can tell those two apart. Um, and reminds us twice during the introduction that we've got a 15-minute time limit, and straight away I'm smelling draw in this match. I hate the TV title, really do. Um, Brian goes on the offense early, um, going after the tape thigh of Regal, before Regal begins begging off, and Brian just drops to his knees in front of him and hits him with a big slap hot crowd here. He hits a cool Japanese arm drag, but Regal takes a powder. Outside, Pillman follows him and slams his arm onto the guardrail twice, throws his arm into the ring post twice, before Regal gets back on offense with a headbutt and a European uppercut, and then begins to work over Pillman's arm himself. During all this going on, Bobby Heenan's headset broke at ringside. Um, he's taking a while to get it back on while Tony Schiavone's busting his balls about it. Regal counters a leapfrog with a... Um, Grabs him in midair and hits him with almost a backdrop or a Northern Lights suplex. A really cool looking spot. Before Brian Pillman comes back with a small package for a two count. Regal locks on what would later become known as the Regal Stretch. Um, it's not a finisher at this point, just a wear down move. Um, and he begins to slow the match right down with submission holds. Um, a few more mat based holds as well, which get rolled through and put back in. And I'm smelling a time limit draw definitely on the cards now. Pillman then counters. Um, what looked like it might have been a backbreaker type move with an awkward looking Rana before Regal again slows the match down putting on submission holds it's, it's getting a little bit dull here um, Regal hits a sloppy roll up for a two count before they go into some nasty stiff punching exchanges here um, really going at it and they're mentioning the time counting down on the ringside mic as well um, you can see what's coming it's definitely going to be a draw 
Pillman gets a drop kick to Regal with the time starting to run out and goes on the babyface run, as happens in every TV title match. Hits an Enziguri, uh, but Regal does reverse a monkey flip and um, comes off the second rope but gets hit by a drop kick, followed by a backdrop. We're told there's 30 seconds left, so Brian Pillman, being the ring tactician that he is, goes to the corner for a 10-punch spot. Idiot. Bobby Heenan mirrors my thoughts and on commentary calls Pillman an idiot before both men end up over the top rope with a bit of a clothesline um, and the time runs out. I fucking hate the TV title. WCW, just so predictable. They introduce a TV title match, I think draw. It's just so old. And in the crowd, someone agrees with my sentiment again because there's a sign that says, who booked this? Not me, that's for sure. In fact, the match was so bad that my four-year-old daughter walked into the room and said, Daddy, this is boring. And I said, you're right, yes it is. What would you like to watch? Backstage, Gene's interviewing Colonel Robert Parker and the bunkhouse Buck, who is a fucking idiot. Um, go back and watch him. I can't say enough about how stupid he sounded. Um, they're hyping Austin and Mooder's match and the bunk- bunkhouse Buck up against Dustin Rhodes. Um, just sounds like a wanker to me. From there, we go to a tag title match with the Nasty Boys defending up against Cactus Jack and Max Payne. Um, Nobs is getting a little bit large as they come on out. And when the faces come out, Cactus Jack's wearing a Super Dad t-shirt and Max Payne is being introduced as from the state of Euphoria. Cool. They begin brawling on the ramp and it's hot and heavy. It is hard to keep up with. Some of the highlights include Max Payne hitting a boss man slam type move on Nobs. Um, Nobs hitting a pool cue on Cactus Jack. Lots of brawling, lots of weapons, swapping over. The camera's struggling to keep up. which Production wasn't great on this one. Some chairs come in. Um, you hear a guy in the front row go, Chicago Street Fight, baby. Woo! Okay, no problem. Um, they take turns pairing off, swapping over. Um, they head out to a gimmick table or concession stand um, right next to the ramp. It had to be fake, but they became brawling on that. We had a horrible split screen. Um, think what TV you would likely have had back in 1994. Now think split screen, you're thinking half-half. Well, no, you're looking less than a quarter of the screen for each of the two, and the rest was just a horrible almost like a DVD credit screen um, with just that Western background. Looks stupid. Really took away from the match for me. Um, Just awful production. Payne puts um, knobs through the gimmick table when we come back to the match and stuffs a shirt down his mouth for a two count. Over on the other side, Sags hits Cactus Jack with a table. Yes, he hits him with the table. And then um, Cactus Jack suplexes the table itself onto Sags. Um cool spots but a little bit weird before Nobs hits Cactus Jack in the head hard with a shovel. Max gets a shovel and hits Nobs with it. Sags goes for a pile driver on the table but the sheer weight of it collapses the table. It looked really nasty so he just gets up and throws Cactus off the stage who takes a flat back bump to the concrete. Really sick. Um, then he comes down on the floor, hits him in the face with a shovel and gets a three count. Um, someone in the crowd throws a beer on Sags after this who then goes and hits Max Payne with what's left of the shovel and what's left of the table. Really crazy, intense brawl. Not bad. Um, If you've not seen this and you want to see some early Mick Foley stuff or what the Nasty Boys were like when they were going, I'd probably go and check this out. It wasn't bad. Backstage, Jesse Ventura is interviewing Johnny B. Bad, who's wearing a Halloween children's cowboy outfit, and tells us that he wants a shot at the US title no matter who wins the match, saying he wants to prove that once and for all that he's the greatest wrestler of all times. Yes, times in plural. Um, then Muda comes out to what sounded like some Super Nintendo theme music, pretty cool. Had a red mask and some fake nails on. He looked a little bit like the love child of Spider-Man and um, Vega from Street Fighter 2. He's out with Colonel uh, Austin, sorry, out next with Colonel Robert Parker, and he's looking a little bit like Colonel Sanders, and we pan to the crowd, and there's a guy holding up a KFC bucket to taunt him. Pretty funny. Uh, we go into Austin and Muda for the US title, um, and there's a lot of stalling early on. Tony Schiavone's putting Steve Austin over huge here, um, which is interesting because it's not too long after this Hogan comes in and things fall apart for Austin in WCW. Early on in the match, they exchange headlocks and wrist locks, and... Um, Muda puts on an abdominal stretch. It's a bit of a slow start before Austin hits a back suplex for a one count. And Muda hits a vertical suplex and a spinning elbow. Looked really cool. Um, don't Bobby Heenan says, don't tell us don't tell anyone, sorry, but it was me singing before. Aaron Neville was lip syncing. Aaron Neville then appears to be sitting next to the commentary team. Nothing really comes of it, but it was interesting. Um, the match begins to speed up as well as Muda rolls under a leapfrog and hits a drop kick on Austin. 
gets a two off a roll up, and Muda puts on a hammerlock, and Colonel distracts Muda, and Steve Austin knocks him out of the ring. They go outside for some brawling with Austin in control. Austin puts on an abdominal stretch and in some wrestling logic, grabs the ropes to help out, but Muda hip tosses him out of it anyway. Misses a drop kick. Austin comes off the middle rope with his famous elbow, uh, but not from the turnbuckle, from the center of the middle rope before Muda hits a big spin kick and gets a Muda chant going from the crowd. Austin goes for a submission hold, but it's blocked. Muda hits a stun gun on Austin, which the commentator sellers using his own move, hits the handspring elbow, and the crowd are getting pretty hot here. Puts Austin up top and comes off with a Hurricane Rana off the top, but Parker distracts the referee. Austin charges in, gets backdropped over the top rope, and because this is WCW, that will be a disqualification, allowing Austin to hold onto the US title. Samuda comes over the top rope, landing on both Parker and Austin. Crappy finish to an otherwise really good match. I enjoyed this. Definitely worth watching. Backstage, another interview from Jesse Ventura, this time with Dustin Rhodes, the highlight of which he tells Bunkhouse Buck that he's going to get your possum raccoon butt. 90s wrestling, folks. Our next match is Sting up against Ravishing Rick Rude, who's defending his international title. For those of you not aware, um, when WCW broke away from the NWA somewhat, they still had the NWA belt, but I think there was some dispute about whether or not they could keep it, so they brought out their own title. And it's a murky history, but they essentially had two world titles at this time. This one they renamed to the international title, but it is the classic big gold belt, which is probably the most confusing aspect of it, that they... Brought in another world title, but later on, this one became the world title again. Um, I know, try and follow it, hey? Anyway, getting to the match, the entrances here are noticeable for two things. Rick Rude with that big gold belt, he's looking pretty old. And Sting comes out to this bad boy. Before the match can get underway, Harley Race comes out as well and announces that Vader wants the winner of this match. But Sting nails him pretty quickly before Rude attacks Sting. Um, but Sting gets on the offense, hits a big back body drop while he's still in his robe, then knocks him out of the ring and hits him with a suplex on the floor. Uh, they get back into the ring and Sting's on the offense, a back suplex for a two count. Hits some big ob- elbows, sorry, with a hot crowd uh, before Rude catches a hold of Sting and crutches him. Rude gets in control with a back suplex and a camel clutch. Um, slows the pace down to really take control here. They exchange some awkward-looking victory rolls before Rick Rude puts on a sleeper. Uh, and Sting gets out of it and starts to no-sell some punches. Hits three sloppy-looking atomic drops and three big clotheslines. Um, and then a back body drop botch as Rude over rotates and folds, lands on his legs in an an awkward looking spot. I also begin to have a look at what Sting's wearing as the match is going on here. He's wearing black and white, which for this time period was a little bit unusual for Sting, and the scorpions on his trousers um, are actually just skeletons of scorpions, and I'm trying to put my finger on who he looks like, and then all of a sudden it dawns on me. In a dark, dark town, there was a dark, dark street. In the dark, dark street, there was a dark, dark house. In the dark, dark house, there were dark, dark stairs. Down the dark, dark stairs, there was a dark, dark cellar. And in the dark, dark cellar, some skeletons lived. There was a big skeleton, a little skeleton, and a dog skeleton. Woof!
there's one thing this show helps me do. It certainly relive my childhood. Um, back to the match now, and we get a ref bump as he gets caught up in the Stinger Splash with a big sandwich coming off. This brings out Harley Race, this time with Vader. Sting manages to get rid of them, but Rude comes in with a chop block. Um, Sting was kind of looking over at him, so he saw it coming, so it was a little bit of an awkward spot, but he nails it nonetheless. Um, we then get a Rude Awakening... Um, attempt as he re goes for it really really slowly the, the finishing sequence coming here where harley race is going to get in and accidentally nail rude with a chair but he has to stall the move so much for race to get in there it's really awkward and sloppy looking and a weak chair shot as well which keeps rick rude down for the one two three and sting is your new international champion it was an okay match but nothing to write home about certainly i thought these two could have done better on commentary after the match, Tony Schiavone tells us that Ric Flair offered Hulk Hogan two tickets to the show. Uh, he doesn't actually turn up, spoiler alert. And from here we go to Dustin Rhodes up against Bunkhouse Buck. Um, Dustin charges down the ramp and clotheslines Buck over the top rope into the ring, then hits a backdrop before going back outside for the outside brawl. Um, Bunkhouse Buck looks like Chuck Norris's cousin, if Chuck Norris's cousin was on heroin. Um, Dustin then misses a crossbody, um, which allows Bunkhouse Buck, sorry, to break a stick over Dustin's back, and then Dustin does the Rikishi sell off a clothesline on the ramp, not too far into the match, and Dustin's bleeding. Um, Dustin manages to get some powder into the eyes, though, and in a very street fight move, gets a crowd clap started for support. Buck gets back on the offense, though, and begins to whip Dustin with his belt. There's blood everywhere. He's already bleeding a gusher here, and Robert Parker on the outside's telling him to give up, you yellow dog. Dustin gets back on control though and the match is really boring as shit but there is a little bit of crowd heat um, so they seem to be into it. It's just punches, belt shots, um, a second rope cowboy boot fish drop from Dustin with it, who'd taken his boot off and then he rips off Bunkhouse Buck's thermo sweater and it returns the favour with some belt shots. There's an awkward spot where Bunkhouse Buck is attempted to load up a glove with something. Dustin walks over but realises the spot's not ready so he just turns around and walks away. Um, when he does get back on control, in control he nails the 10 punch spot the corner but with elbows instead of punches then a bulldog and a suplex which brings in robert parker um, and whips the shit out of him which allows bunkhouse buck to get an awkward looking roll up for a two count um, parker gives him some knucks which he nails dustin with for the one two three in a really poor bloody brawl um, nothing to this at all um, then jesse ventura inter interviews rick rude um, vader's in the heel locker room as well and they have to be pulled apart um, rude's really hot with vader for costing him the match from there we go to Vader's match up against the boss, which is just the big boss man. If you changed his blue shirt to a black shirt and you didn't have copyright for the name. Um, they announce this uh, in the in the arena as the gigantic grudge match. Boss comes out first to some Scott Steiner-like Styrons, Styrons, Sirens even, and they brawl on the ramp. Uh, Vader wipes out Harley Race who is holding the boss man as boss man escapes and hits that hoe train attack we love so much. And they're brawling on the outside so much, Bobby Heenan asks us, why does WCW even bother with a ring? They exchange punches on the ramp um, before Vader heads over the top into the ring um, with a splash, but Boss gets his knees up. Heenan's just saying Boss Man, he's not even attempting to say Boss here, it's pretty funny. Um, and the Boss Man, I guess I'm saying it too, whips Vader over the ropes into the rail and then spits at Harley Race in a not very friendly manoeuvre. Uh, back in the ring and Boss Man nails an avalanche and an awkward body slam before hitting a very dangerous back backdrop over the ropes. Heart and mouth there, as I thought someone was going to be in a lot of trouble. Uh, we get a suplex and a splash for a two count um, before we notice that Vader's busted open and Boss Man hits a big clothesline, which Vader then returns pretty quickly with one of his own. Vader goes up for the Vader bomb and Boss Man counters it with sort of a reverse power slam, a little bit of a weird spot, but it looked pretty cool. Then goes up top for a top rope shoulder, but Vader gets under the ropes for the pin to be broken up. Um, he goes up top which is countered with a proper power slam, which is probably the spot they meant to use last time. Um, but then he does come back and hit a Vader bomb for the two count. Vader then goes up top and the crowd erupts. They're hot. They know what's coming. And sure enough, Vader actually nails the moonsault for a one, two, three. Um, Harley Race then comes in the ring with a nightstick and cuffs. Bossman gets a hold of it, though, and beats the absolute shit out of Harley Race with the nightstick. Um... Vader seems a little bit more popular here, which was a little bit weird. A bit of a, some heel tactics here from the boss man. Um, 
really good stuff though from um, from Vader. He was very impressive, especially the moonsault. And fair fucks to the boss man for taking it, because I wouldn't lay there and take it. Then we go to Gene Oakland shilling the hotline. Um, you standard fare from him. Uh, before we see Nick Buckwinkle in the back taking the cuffs and the nightstick off the boss man, and then actually takes his name. He says, you're not allowed to be called the boss anymore. Very weird way to get get a name change into him, because in actual fact, the WWF had filed copyright infringement against WCW for just taking the word man away and presenting one of their characters on TV. This was their way of getting out of being sued any longer. Then out comes Ricky Steamboat for the main event. Uh, he'll be challenging Ric Flair for the World Heavyweight title. In a funny fact, Ricky Steamboat's basically in his WWF um, dragon gimmick, which the WWF got panned for using, so it was interesting to see him come back to WCW and pretty much use it again. And we see that one of Ric Flair's wives are at ringside to watch the match. The match gets underway. Uh, it does have a 45-minute time limit, this one. There's some chain wrestling to start, um, and Flair... Looks for chops as well. Um, Bobby Heenan tells us that he was in the AWA when Ricky Steamboat started, so that's some interesting trivia. Uh, and we get some um, more chain wrestling before going into chops yet again. The pace does quicken here, and we get a press slam and a flying head scissor for a two count by Steamboat, and a drop kick and flares on the outside of the ring. We get thrown back in, and then off the top rope we come with a huge chop before Flair gets back on the offense, um, and Ricky Steamboat fires back on him with a big slap. He then goes into what I call the El Matador spot, where he puts on a headlock, and despite being thrown against the ropes or lifted up, holds onto the headlock in all different predicaments. This is something I saw Tito Santana do towards the end of his career quite a lot, especially when he was El Matador. Flair throws Steamboat over the top rope, but he skins a cat, so I guess that's not a disqualification, uh, before we get a roll-up for a two-count and going back to the headlock. They come back in the ring and they get into a hold, a front face lock, and do some mat wrestling. It's pretty easy to see how they manage to go so long, because they do pace themselves quite well. Um, they get back at it and flare again with the ch chops, then some punches, uh, before hitting a snapmare and that lovely rolling knee drop of his. We're told this 15 minutes uh, gone over the PA. Um, we see another knee from Ric Flair, and he goes for a pin seven times, all of which got a two count bit strange um, and he goes for an elbow drop hits that and then gets three more two counts before they begin exchanging chops um, and a cross body on Ricky Steamboat which actually sends both men over the ropes again not a disqualification and they begin out brawling on the outside again back in Ricky Steamboat hits a superplex which was cool gets a two count um, then Flair goes into the buckle and Steamboat chops him on his run down the apron he goes up top and comes off to the outside with a chop to flare, and then we're told 20 minutes have gone by. Back inside, Steamboat hits the 10 punches in the corner and some chops. Flare comes out of the corner with the flare flop. Steamboat pins him, but he gets his foot on the ropes, and Steamboat catches his leg on a knee drop, um, and he actually puts a figure four on Ric Flair. He's in there for a long time, uh, but eventually sits up and thumbs Steamboat in the eye, which gets a big woo from the crowd, so he's obviously still quite popular. He was uh, It was a face-first-face match here, but he was sowing the heel seeds leading up to this with the Hulk Hogan angle on the horizon. Steamboat gets a series of two counts, reversing a crossbody, a backslide, and a small package uh, before they once again begin exchanging chops as the 25-minute announcement comes again. Flair again does his corner flip bump, um, and then Steamboat starts stalling on the outside. Um, he's hurt his arm, it appears. Not sure how that happened, uh, but he does come back with a crossbody for a two count before Flair nails a clothesline. And the crowd are really cheering for all the offensive moves here. Probably Ric Flair a little bit, but both guys are pretty popular. Flair, as usual, goes up top and gets caught. Steamboat then goes up top himself and misses a splash uh, before Flair puts on the figure four. Steamboat does get to the ropes after a while, and they tell us 30 minutes have gone by. Um, Flair goes for the figure four yet again, which is reversed into a small package for a two. Another black backslide for a two before they exchange chops again. There's a lot of repeated spots here, but it is kept at a good pace, and the crowd are into it. Another superplex. Um, my note here says a lot of repeated spots got in there early, uh, but it is a good match. Uh, we get a two count off that, and then a double chicken wing from Steamboat, the move that he won the title with in 89, uh, but he then bridges it into a pin, 
for a three count and a second ref comes out and I smell a rat um, Nick Patrick tells Bockwinkle that they both had their shoulders down so Nick Bockwinkle announces the only fair decision is a draw which means Flair will retain the title Steamboat seems a little bit pissed off and he storms out and um Nick Bockwinkle says, we'll talk to the board. Um, we'll explain the outcome and the decision on Saturday night. Um, it's not really how you should end a pay-per-view. There shouldn't... Uh, a draw is bad enough, in my opinion. You want a decisive winner. But a draw done the right way can be okay. But then to say, tune into free TV and we'll explain what happened. Well, why don't you just explain it now? I've paid for the show. Um, ended what could have been a good match and a good angle on a bit of a sour note for my money. But without any further ado, that'll do it. Let's go and pick ourselves a winner. We start off tonight with crowd heat, and I've gone a little bit soft here. I've made it a tie. I was leaning towards the WWF, but the Chicago crowd are always noisy. Um, Chicago and New York are actually two really good markets for wrestling. Um, New York had more people. Chicago, especially in the second half of the show, managed to get the noise level up, so it was a bit of a tough one to pick. Therefore, I didn't. Storylines, I went with the WWF. The Owen and Brett storyline was, you know, in its early stages, but was already awesome, and we continue to grow from here. And the booking of having Owen beat Brett, then Brett win the title, set up your number one contender and your champion's first feud nicely. Sean and Razor was a great story, um, and this was an awesome ending to it, obviously. Brett's quest to get the title back after WrestleMania 9, culminating a year later, which was another good story. Um, and they got out of the Lex Luger one, with a feud intact at least without him looking too bad so that was good um wcw on the other hand does bottle it too much when it comes to picking a winner too many draws um i really hate the tv title i know i've said it but it always ends in a draw and too many rick flair matches end in a draw if he's your top guy let him win some bloody matches um so wwf pulls that one out the bag for me when it comes to characters, I actually went with WCW. The WWF did have Brett and Owen and Sean and Razor, all good. But then you've got the likes of Doink, Men on a Mission, Adam Bomb. Just some absolute garbage there. WCW has a lot less cheesiness between Flair, Steamboat, Austin, Muda, Regal, Pillman, Vader. They've got a lot of really good realistic wrestlers. Um, the flip side to that is it likes a bunkhouse buck and things like that. But it's minimal compared to the WWF. For production value, I went to WrestleMania 10. It was really slick. Um, Spring Stampede wasn't horrible, but there was a couple of little things. It was a little bit darker. The picture-in-picture for the tag title match hurt it big time, and the music was garbage as well, so WWF wins that one. Which leads us to the big one for the night, match quality. Who took this one out? Um, we all know, uh, I mentioned earlier, the star ratings for the two big matches at WrestleMania, and the two title matches weren't garbage either. They were okay. Um, the Earthquake Adam Bomb was quick enough the tag match was okay the real only only real stinker was doink and luna up against uh, sorry doink and luna bam bam and luna against doink and dink um on the wcw side of things it probably had a better average of matches they, they were good overall um certainly had more three plus star matches i think but having two draws for finishes really hurt it and it's hard to pick against a show that produced owen and brett and that ladder match in the same night so i'm going to go with wwf simply because those two matches were better than anything else on either show and to have two of them really made it so for me wrestlemania 10 delivers um but it's a lot closer than what I thought it would be. When I thought about reviewing Mania 10 and Spring Stampede, I really thought it would be a whitewash, but it certainly wasn't that. And it's showing me, the same as with the, the Raw and Nitro 95 timeline we've been going down, even in 94 there was some quality wrestling. So the Dark Ages of, of Wrestling has some good stuff if you want to go back and check it out. I'd highly recommend some of it. With all that being said, I'd just like to, again, thank everybody for listening. Um... The word's getting out there now, and there's a few more markets coming into regular listens, so there's obviously some new listeners on board who I would like to say hello and thank you to. We've got uh, quite a few new downloads in Denver, Colorado, so hello to out there. Jacksonville, Florida, again, hello to whoever's downloading there. And closer to home for me originally, Middlesbrough in England, so whoever's listening to me up north, hello, and happy that Borough are back in the Premiership, and I hope Alvaro Negredo rips up trees for you guys like you did at City for about six months. That being said, just to keep in, um, in mind that we do have two 
listener request shows to come up and two still to go if anyone listen leaves as a five-star review on itunes please um share and like and things like that on twitter and feel free to interact as always the podcast is still in its infancy so looking for feedback as well please feel free to get in touch with any suggestions any thoughts um good or bad i'm a big boy i'll certainly take any of the negative on the chin and i've got a few guys on twitter now that are interacting nicely so thank you to everyone and i will see you next time for episode 11 